All right. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. We are talking this evening about deep repentance, uh, a, a word I chose very intentionally, uh, that word deep. And uh, Psalm 51, we'll read and then I'll pray. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness." O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, may we hear with joy what it is you have to say to us tonight, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Deep repentance. In order to live the Christian life with all the abundance and exuberance that salvation offers us, One must be familiar both with himself and his ability, or lack thereof, to execute repentance. You need to be able to be familiar with yourself and your ability, or lack thereof, to execute repentance. All of us need to be taught in the school of repentance. Repentance doesn't just happen. This is not a natural, autonomic function of spirituality. Uh, If it were, we wouldn't be prone to making up a laundry list of reasons for justifying sin in our lives. A question here is, would you fortify your life with repentance? Would you fortify your life from the judgment of God? Then you must learn repentance. Moreover, the quantity of repentance in your life should be measured by the amount of sin in your life. We have this eerie ability to tell ourselves that we're going to weed the garden of our heart, all the while failing to actually get around to doing it. And another question I have for us here on the front end is this, what is it that weighs more in your heart? 
What is it that weighs more in your heart? What is the ratio in terms of weight? Do you have five pounds of sin, hidden sins, and only a drop of repentance in your life? Brothers and sisters, this should not be so. In order to be taught in the school of repentance, we must visit the class of Psalm 51. The Lord has much to teach us, and by His grace, we may graduate with flying colors. Psalm 51 is a liturgy about broken men with broken hearts. It's a journey from alienation because of this grave sin to a, the joy that is the restored life that God gives us. And we read from the superscript there the title that this is actually about David's sin with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan's confrontation of, of King David that was just read. Uh, the parable that was told and David condemned himself not knowing uh, that he was talking about him. And in this situation with David and Bathsheba, what a great sin, indeed, a great, great sin. But as we'll see tonight, what a great Savior we have, an even greater Savior. Now, David understood his need for repentance. He understood his need and the need for repentance. And we see this here, of course. In fact, there, there is, uh, there's no greater chapter in Holy Scripture that outlines the doctrine of repentance. Uh, if you have turmoil and anxiety and frustration in your life, this is a chapter you should be highly, highly familiar with. Now, in our text, three words are used that, when uttered, can absolutely change your life. Three words are used here that, when utter, uttered, can absolutely change your life. Uh, three words can be said with all sincerity of heart, and once said, can set you on a life-changing course. What are those words? The three words David, David uses here are this. I have sinned. I have sinned. And we see that there in verse 4. Familiarize yourself with these words, dear church. Do not let days and weeks go by without stating these words before the Lord in prayer. Be like the tax collector in Luke, uh, Luke 18, 13 when he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Uh, those three words, I have sinned, remind us that new life is grounded only in forgiveness. Thomas Watson said, God will not pardon for repentance, nor yet without it. Ponder that for a second. God will not pardon for repentance, nor yet without it, meaning that the instrument of repentance alone does not grant the pardon. That's only step one. It must be married to faith in Jesus Christ, whose blood has purchased your standing in the courtroom of God. Repentance is step one. Faith placed on Christ is the other step. Now let's look at our passage. I'm going to give you an overview. The passage moves from a confession and a desire for personal cleansing. That's verses one through nine. And then it moves to an anticipation and renewal for proper sacrifice. That's verses 10 through 19. So it, it, brokenness at the front end, which leads to right worship of God and, on, on the tail end of it. David wants forgiveness from the high and lifted up judge so that he may be renewed for service. That's the aim of it. It's not just forgiveness for the sake of forgiveness. It's forgiveness for the sake of right worship, for right service unto God and, and unto neighbor. Repentance begets forgiveness, and forgiveness grants us service to God, service to our, our neighbor, service to someone in need. 
There are no enemies to rebuke in this passage. Um, it's not a prayer of imprecation against the enemies of God. Uh, God is not brought in and, and complained against. This is not at all a psalm where God is the subject of complaint. Here is a man with a bewildering trouble for which he alone is to blame. He alone is to blame. There's no hint of any sort of uh, David, well, you know, that woman, it's her fault. Sort of repeating uh, what happened with Adam. He has a bewildering trouble that's before him. A prophet who has come to confront him for his grievous sins, putting Uriah to death, uh, taking a woman who was not his. Um, he alone's to blame in the situation. The whole song is one of petition asking, and asking of God to remake him from the inside out, starting with the inside, working it to the outside. And I have broken it up into six uh, short sections, each with a particular emphasis. And so let's begin with the first two verses. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is the plea. Verses 1 and 2 gives us the plea. Be gracious to me, O God. That is the anchor of the entire psalm. The rest of the work flows out of this audacious appeal. Uh, begin with God and you'll, you'll never go wrong. Begin with God and you'll never go wrong. If you end with God, you'll never be more right. David begins with this affirmation. The, the grace, the loving kindness, that's that word chesed again, the grace, the loving kindness and compassion of God is the only thing that can deal with his transgressions, his iniquities, and his sins. Notice, three character traits of God for three sins. David, he does not plead his innocence. You know, be gracious to me, I was just misunderstood. <laughs> be gracious to me, I was hungry, and I got hangry, and I made a, a boo-boo. <laughs> He doesn't do that. He does not plead his innocence. He doesn't shift the blame at all. He doesn't shift the blame in this situation. And he doesn't justify his actions. There's none of that in this psalm, which means there should be none of that in our lives. He pleads for God's mercy, by the way. He pleads for God's mercy and not his justice, which is akin to the death penalty. But that's the only solu solution here. The only solution is for David to cast himself on the grace of God his, his faithfulness, his compassion, his loving kindness. That's the only way he can deal with this. Psalm 32, 1. You've heard this one before. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessing it is to have your sins atoned for in Christ. Now in this case, Yahweh is rightly believed to be deeply committed to dispensing his royal loving kindness to his people. That word has said is used in Scripture to highlight perhaps God's greatest feature. It's repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament because it's a covenant word, and it's a covenant word that highlights the faithful covenant-keeping God of Israel. When you describe God in the Old Testament, if you were to talk to, to David or talk to, to Moses, talk to any of these great men in Scripture, uh, weak men who served a strong God and made themselves strong because of it, Talk to them. What, who is this God? Who is Yahweh? Well, that's the covenant-keeping, loyal God of Israel. That's who He is. And that's why that word is so potent and powerful in Scripture. 
And David knows that this aspect of God's covenant relationship is his only opportunity for forgiveness and restoration. When you, church, pray to Christ for forgiveness, when you are dealing with a sin that you have committed or perhaps a friend, you're dealing with a a turmoil in a relationship, whatever, when you go to Christ, you appeal to the blood of Christ. You don't appeal to, well, Jesus was a nice guy. You appeal to his faithfulness in keeping covenant, his faithfulness who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, David's, we could say it this way, David's unfaithfulness does not shake God's faithfulness. Because you, you can, you can kind of go one of two ways here. One is, I've sinned and I don't care. Or the other is, I've sinned and I struggle to believe that God really would ever forgive me. And sometimes we teeter and totter back and forth on that. Now, note the word blot. There's three words here, blot, uh, wash, and cleanse. So we have three character traits of God, three actions to deal with three, uh, three different um, sins or, or ways we describe it. Three, three, and three. So transgressions, they need to be erased from David's book. To blot something out is to blot out someone's name in a ledger, some sort of an accounting uh, metaphor. Uh, the book of life, right? You want your name written in the book of life. So that's what transgressions need. Iniquity is a stain that can only be washed with the soap of the gospel. And the the third word there is sin, uh, which is just a general term meaning ceremonially uh, defiled. You're defiled before God. You have to be made holy. You need to be cleansed. And these words, by the way, are repeated in reverse order in verses 7 and 9. So that's the plea. The plea is for the covenant mercy of God to deal with him. Next, we move to the confession. Look at verses 3 through 5. David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. He's confessing the the totality of this issue with sin. There, there's no hubristic moralism here. You know, I'm a good person. You know, God's going to forgive me. That's every other system, every other cult, every other religion other than Christ. I'm a good person. God will be favorable to me. There, there's no, none of that moralism. There's just an utter forsakenness of sin and the total adoration of the covenant Lord to whom David is most accountable. Notice he says, my transgression, my sin. If you, friends, want forgiveness, you must have repentance. If you want repentance, you must own what is yours. My sin. That's why peacemaking in the church is so difficult today. People criticize, say, Christians just fight and argue all the time, and there's all, you know, this bickering back and forth, and, and well, that's because we're, we're struggling with sin, and uh, the rest of you are just embracing it, but... <laughs> When you're struggling with sin, you have to realize you need to own what is yours. Own what is yours. If you need to apologize to someone, own what is yours. This is what I did. This was wrong. It was mine. Own it. The truly repentant ones are self-aware. If you want to be truly repentant in your life, you need to be self-aware. You have to know that it was yours and you have to own it as such. And David understood, he, he knew that he had ultimately sinned against God. His behavior was utter, utter treason. It was treasonous behavior altogether. Um, 
he, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, that should not be constituted to mean that he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba. There's a reason he said that. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament explains that there are um, hidden sins and there are, are even uh, uh, sins that someone might commit accidentally, um, the flying axe head situation in, in biblical law. Um, you also have high-handed sins, which Scripture condemns, and those are usually re reserved for the death penalty. But there's no such thing in the Old Testament as a sin that does not affect the community in some degree or another. Oh, this is just my private thing that I do in secret. And no, no, no. There's no category for that in the Old Testament, and certainly not the New Testament either. Because even Jesus hones in on that. If you're angry with your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. He drills down deeper, which is where the law was always pointed to. So there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't affect the community, but they affect the community because sins are defined as such by God. The reason sin is first and foremost against God is because without God, sin would be unknowable and undefinable. There's no standard of holiness if we don't have God. Sin wouldn't be sin. It's just a category we made up on our own autonomy. So self-consciousness, think about your own that's what sanctification is. All of us as followers of Christ are trying to be self-conscious. God is fully self-conscious. He doesn't have to learn anything from anyone, anybody else. He's not lacking information. He's not insecure. You know, he's not in pursuit of, of some knowledge that he doesn't possess. But we need to be self-conscious. Self-consciousness is only possible with the self-contained, entirely self-conscious God. You can only, in other words, you can only know yourself if you understand and know God. That was the opening section of Calvin's great work on the Institutes of, of Christian Religion. Knowledge of self can really truly only happen with knowledge of God. So in order to establish the purity of God's justice, David comes clean with his sin. When you choose to not come clean with your sin, you are essentially saying that God is unjust. That's the connection David makes here. And in verse 5, David confesses the life of sin, and not just one single instance. All over this, the Hebrew has both singular and plural. You talk about transgressions, plural, and then you just have a general category, sin. But, but we're talking about a life of sin. In sin, my mother conceived me, right? He was brought forth in iniquity. Uh, he knows that there is life beyond this guilt and punishment, but what does God require? What does it require of him? I mean, he was born into this. Adam sinned. All those sins were imputed through all of us. All, this is Romans 5, basic Romans 5 theology of, of sin in Adam. Adam was our covenant head. He sinned. We are in him. We've sinned too. The whole mess of human existence is sin. This hearts that are directed toward an idol instead of God. But David knows that. He feels the weight of it. But what does God require? Well, he says that truth and wisdom take root in our hearts. That's what God requires. God requires that truth and wisdom take root in our hearts. He even mentions as much here in the text. Five times, David acknowledges that his sins are his own by saying, my, my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. He admits that he has no defense before God. What defense could you possibly conjure up when God knows the intentions of the heart? He has no defense in verse 4. I've done evil in your sight. God sees it all. 
And to make matters worse, sin is this sorry, sad condition in which he lives, thanks to be to the covenantal guilt of Adam being imputed to all humanity. That is verse 5. So that's the confession, and now we move to the restoration. We have the plea, the confession, and now the restoration. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth, there's that word, in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Truth and wisdom should be in your heart. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. To be restored, truth must take root in the inward being, and wisdom must incubate right alongside of it. Evil, we know, is sin because it runs contrary to Yahweh's Torah instruction, Yahweh's truth, and Yahweh's wisdom. Now, David, David feels the weight of that. He knows that I, I didn't have truth and wisdom in my heart in that moment, but I know that I need that. That's part of the, the confession to be restored. David, he feels the weight of it. He asks God to purge him. That word actually means to, like, de-sin someone. Uh, I'm going to come up with a George Bush-ism here. Uncinify. Purged, uncinified. That's such, so something Bush would have said. Descend uh, with hyssop. Now that language is an allusion for the protocol to dealing with lepers and the other ceremonially unclean in Leviticus. But God is the one who can use the hyssop to, to make him clean. Take the hyssop branch, wash him clean. Same thing was used in Jesus on the cross. God is also the one who can wash him whiter than snow, which is a wonderful phrase in Scripture, referenced several times, even in Isaiah chapter 1. Um, washed to be washed whiter than snow. With the Lord, there's no half-done laundry. Anybody leave your laundry in for like three days? Whoops, forgot that was in there. But with the Lord, there's no half-done laundry. You're, you are washed whiter than snow. Some of you are laughing. You've done longer than three days, I know. In this scenario, in this scenario, we find that repentance wouldn't be deep if we don't ask for our ears to hear joy and gladness and for the bones that have been crushed to cry out in praise. It's not repentance if you've not come to the end of yourself and ask God to let my ears hear joy and gladness and let my lips praise you. It's just half-hearted repentance. It's not it's surfacey repentance. It's not deep repentance. Let the bones that you have crushed cry out in praise. Sometimes we just don't realize that our bones are actually crushed. We want God to turn our sorrow into praise, our degeneracy into active worship and obedience. In short, we want to be restored servants of the Most High. That's the aim. The next part, verses 10 through 13, is the renewal. I, I like that song, uh, and I appreciate your efforts with that, Keith and others, because this is a very somber, I think it's a very somber moment in David's prayer here where he stops and he just created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you renewal is is next 
but it has to start at the center. The renewal David asked for is nothing short than a new creation. In repentance, we are not asking God to change our situation. Children, you should know that too. When you were repenting for an altercation with your siblings or a friend, it's not really repentance if you're asking God to just take away the situation. We are asking for God to change us. To create in the Hebraic world is to ask God to put something there that was not there before. That word in Hebrew is bara, um, out of nothing. It reminds us of the very beginning of creation, by the way. Uh, the very first phrase in, in Genesis 1.1, Bereshit bara Elohim, create in me a clean heart, a new heart. Bara is the Hebrew word for something to be brought into existence that wasn't actually there. So David cries out for a miracle. Here's what he's saying. And all of us just saying that, so let's make sure we, we know what we're talking about. Create out of nothing in one single word a new heart. The God who has created all things into existence by simply speaking it into existence. David says, I, he calls on the God of creation to speak a creation word again, to renew his heart, to give him a new heart, a different heart, a created out of nothing heart. Inward renewal requires inward cleansing, and inward cleansing requires a reworking of the heart. And David continues to cry out for a miracle. This is, <laughs> it's not repentance if you don't understand the miraculous nature of it. He cries out, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now the heart and, and spirit or the soul of a man, of you, women, children, you too, the heart characterizes man's condition and his direction as he lives in God's world. All of us are going and doing things because of our hearts. The heart is the center. That's what sends us out. It's the, the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23 says. And we want two things here, which lines up, by the way, to the provisions of the new covenant. David cries out for clean hearts, a clean heart that's unsullied by sin. So... That's what we have in the Holy Spirit who cleans the mess up, resides with us. That's the promise of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. That's what Jesus brings. And we want a renewed and steadfast spirit that's fixated on the Lord. And what did the Holy Spirit do? He wrote that law on your heart. So we have forgiveness of sins in Christ applied by the Spirit in the heart where the law is written. So David, he says, create, renew, do not cast, do not take, restore. Notice all these words. And deliver. David is a man who, though he has sinned egregiously, he believes with the utmost of confidence that God can bring him back from his sin. Never let yourself get to the place, friends, where you just don't think that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover your sin. Repentance is thus a gift from God. In human terms, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Uh, one hallmark of, of Reformed theology tells us that we were dead in our sins. We weren't just injured in our sins. We were dead. We could not waken, awaken ourselves to receive the gift of Christ. The Spirit had to do that. That's a miracle. So we give Him sin. We give Christ wickedness. That's the beating He endured. That's the cross He endured. He makes us new out of nothing. Repulsive, incendiary sins are wiped squeaky clean. Oh, the grace of God. 
You see, the gospel puts something in you that you didn't have before. The renewal goes from the inside out. David, notice that David wants to be cleansed so that he can teach transgressors the way of God's Torah. (laughs) What a weird statement. It seems very strange in verse 13 for him to include that. He wants to be restored so he can teach them God's law, his wisdom, uh, how to repent, how to be restored. And this is basically, don't miss this verse. People skip over it. Repentance is actually evangelistic. Repentance is evangelistic. Parents, your, your children should see your repentance. They should see it. You, you are using it as a way to fortify their lives. You're using it as a way to teach them this is what forgiveness looks like. This is what repentance looks like. To, to, it's evangelistic. It helps and encourages people see. Wow, the, the, that's why abolitionists, we love to say, hey, wake up, church, come repent with us. Repent with us for your apathy for the sin of abortion. Repent with us for your apathy uh, towards statism and, and humanism and all that. So to restore the broken heart is to restore the city of God. Um, I, I, how to say this short and sweet? Renewed people, renew cultures. That's the logic here. Renewed people, renewed, renew cultures. We are speaking about infectious Christianity. The infection being the kind that does not social distance, by the way. Infectious Christianity. Repentance isn't, isn't just about you and the Lord. It isn't just about you and the Lord. It includes that, but it's not just about you and the Lord. It's about you and the covenant community on the greater mission to disciple the nations. Look at verse 14. We finally come to the humble worshiper. Repentance leads to humility in worship. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Note that the goal isn't isolation and staying in your prayer closet all day and just ignoring the world. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, what does God demand of you, friends? Here it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Repentance leads to humility and worship before God. Now, guilt should be expressed. If you have sinned against someone, you should express that guilt clearly without excuse. It's like politicians today getting caught. Oh, I, it's just, it goes against my own personal standard of conduct. You are one confused fellow. You know, you, you're, you can't even, that's a whole different thing. That's not repentance. (laughs) We should express our guilt, absolutely, but we should look to God's grace rather than only looking at the self. Don't ever let your repentance be that. Like, oh, I'm not normally that way. I'm sorry. No, say, my heart is prone to wander. And in doing that, I've hurt you and offended you and it was wrong. It was my sin. Please let the blood of Christ cover this. But don't look to yourself. If, if we're to deal with ourselves, we have to deal with ourselves in light of God's Word. It does no good to measure the self with the self. What a terrible measuring stick that is. David asks for deliverance so he can sing. Do you? He wants forgiveness so he can worship God. Do you? 
He desires to teach sinners and, and praise God. Word and covenant ordinance right here in the text. But the aim of our worship is not the externals at the expense of the internal, but the internal which leads to the external. David, uh, David here acknowledges that men are always ready to bring something to their salvation except for the fact that they cannot, which is why God prefers real heartfelt sacrifice over and above the blood of animals. Broken spirits and contrite hearts are metaphors for our disposition before God. Would you worship the living God? Then have a heart torn asunder by the love of God in Christ. And have a willing spirit broken before the Lord. Don't be a stiff-necked, obtuse sinner in the way of God. Now, offering up an animal in sacrificial system, which, by the way, was supposed to be an extension of the giver, but offering up an animal when your heart is far from God is of no use, he says. God is devoted to you, and that you, that hardened spirit, is to reciprocate this devotion. So formality for the sake of formality is just cold, putrid, empty religion. God would rather you not shed the animal blood if your heart's not in it. And now we have the individual and community. Look at verse 18. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burn offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. The end of repentance brings us back to where we began. David, if you recall, had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba, disrupting David's place in the covenant community. David had sinned not only against those two, but he had sinned against the very people he was called to shepherd as king. His sin put others at risk, and risk of judgment, by the way, much like the sin of Achan and Joshua. Remember? He took some of the stuff and... They lost the next battle, and Joshua has to go sort it out. Achan had sinned deeply. But David's journey from plea to confession to restoration to renewal and being set upright for worship, all of it is connected to the walls of Jerusalem. If you've ever read this text and wondered, what in the world are the walls of Jerusalem being brought up here for? It makes no sense. Well, it does. Here's why. David is the covenant head of the civil magistracy. He had let the walls of Jerusalem become susceptible to invasion because of his sin. Proverbs 25, I think it's verse 23, somewhere around there. Uh, the man without self-control is like a city without walls. David did not have self-control. He was like a city without walls. He should have been in battle. He stayed back. He sinned. The walls came crashing down. That's why the walls are mentioned here. So now he asked God to strengthen those walls as a result of his repentance. And as such, burnt offerings can, can resume and God will be pleased. But when the inner place of a man, when the inner place of a woman or a child, uh, when the inner place is, is, is put in place because of the gospel and his community is, is restored and, and we see holiness flourish out in the world, the joy of true worship can take place. Renewed people renew cultures. Why don't we have renewal in America? We don't have renewal in the church. Now, let's think on this topic of repentance a bit more. Before dealing with the dynamics of what constitutes what I'm calling a deep repentance, we need to make sure that we're on the same page as far as definitions are concerned. And uh, I'm following Louis uh, Burkhoff's lead here as his systematic theology is by far my favorite. But Burkhoff points out that conversion consists of two elements, and they are brought together, I think, quite nicely in our passage. And those two elements of conversion are repentance and faith. 
No one can come to Christ and receive his forgiveness without those two things, repentance and faith, which are both gifts, Ephesians tells us. Burkhoff notes that repentance is retrospective, that is, it looks backwards at the sin, while faith is prospective, that is, looking forward to the forgiveness Christ offers us. So note that. Repentance looks deeply at the sin in the sight of God. Faith then looks deeply at the Christ who has abolished that sin in your life. Repentance, he says, has a correlation to sanctification and maturation and growth, while faith corresponds to justification, which is our legal status thanks to Christ's imputed righteousness given to us. Now, the definition of repentance, and I love this definition from Burkhoff, he says, repentance is that change wrought in the conscious life of the sinner by which he turns away from sin. The conscious life of the sinner, it's change that is wrought in the depths of who you are in your heart by which he turns away from sin. Turn, turning away from sin has three elements. Um, Burkhoff notes this. He says there's an intellectual element. There's an intellectual element to repentance. It's a conscious knowledge of sin, making the self aware that it's an egregious transgression and an offense in the eyes of the Lord. We have to know that a sin is a sin. Know it up here in your mind, in the heart of, of, of your very being. When you think of, uh, usually we think of mind disconnected from the heart, but it, the heart actually is what fills the mind, that sort of thing. So there's an intellectual element, element to repentance, but there's also an emotional element which is a change in feeling about the situation. Growing sorrowful towards the sin committed and growing, growing with a deepened sense of sadness that God has been offended, what the Bible calls godly sorrow. You should feel it. Repentance needs to have an intellectual element, but it's also an emotional element. I mean, who, who here has been apologized to when they said, I'm really sorry that I hurt you? <laughs> you know, just, okay, zombie. <laughs> That's not repentance. It's an emotional aspect, but there's also a volitional element, the third thing. It consists of your will making a decision uh, to, to change your posture, to change your purpose, moving away from the sin and towards the holiness that's granted to us in Christ. Think of what Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Be that serious about the sin that you're willing to lose something that is attached to your body in an effort to pursue holiness. Repentance is the inward act of grace granted by the Spirit that produces confession of sin, but also reparation towards others. It ought to be conjoined with faith so that the direction can positively change. Just think of any relationship you have, a spousal fight or a, a friend, you name it. There should be uh, faith involved, too. Repentance and a faith joined together so that change, is, you know, change in, in, in the relationship can happen. Now, if we simply turn away from our sin, we might be tempted to go forth and, and go into another direction. We might, just, we might substitute a sinful thought with another sinful thought, thinking it's righteous. Or we might substitute a, 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 a sinful situation, running away from that, and then going into another direction where we've fallen into more sin. It's not just a change of direction. If we, if we turn away from sin and we run straight into the arms of Christ, then we've done well. Confessing our sins before God is an acknowledgement that our lives are to ultimately be judged by God. 
If we think our sin will escape the eyes of God, then of course we'll feel free to indulge our lusts. However, we stand before God in an inescapable, ineradicable condition every day. That is, we cannot escape the judgment of God. His eyes are everywhere. Nothing can be hidden from His sight. So confession is based on this unchanging reality that we live before the face of God. Don't forget that. Additionally, repentance involves an admission of sin, which can only be possible by the revelation of God's Torah. We know what sin is because, because God's the creator. We know who that sin is against because Jesus has given us his word to tell us who he is. So confess the sin and the ramifications of that sin. I'm sorry, husband, wife, insert name, that I did XYZ and I realized that XYZ may have caused ABC again. Confess the sin, but confess the ramifications of the sin, too. And confess the fact that you are prone to a life of sinfulness and idolatry. Confess before God. Without you, I would be whatever. I would be totally off kilter. So don't speak generally about your sin. Speak specifically about them. Name them regularly. Name them. I was impatient today, and I sinned against God. I hurt so-and-so, in the process, God, forgive me. Don't, yeah, God, I sinned. I'm really sorry. Moving on. Watchfulness of the soul, what we touched on last week, involves the conscious admission of guilt due to some transgression of the law word of God coupled with a conscious pursuit of Christ. You can't just, you can't have the repentance without the faith. It's, it doesn't work that way. So what is repentance actually look like? I'm going to give you five principles. Repentance looks like this. Number one, repentance begins with the admission that God's grace is our only hope. Repentance begins with the admission that God's grace is our only hope. David starts the confession admitting already that God has been faithful to him despite his own unfaithfulness. Um, repentance concerns who we are apart from Christ, not just what we do apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, Jesus says we can do nothing. So know that, because we think we can do a lot apart from Christ. No Christ, no repentance, that's how it works. Our condition without Jesus and His Holy Spirit is one of despair, depravity, utter hopelessness. <laughs> know that. Familiarize yourself with grace and you will become altogether unfamiliar with sin. So it begins with God's grace being our only hope. Second thing, faith-fueled repentance sees sin clearly. Faith-fueled repentance sees sin clearly. Faith sees clearly unbelief is blind. David used various synonyms for sin in order to explain the comprehensive nature of, his, of it all. Um, it spoils, it stains, it pollutes, it's caustic, it's altogether calamitous. Um, it destroys, it steals, it maims. Sin contam contaminates. Frankly, sin calls God a liar. It does all of those things. Sin causes us to atrophy in our lives. You get bored with assembling with the people of God. You get bored with prayer, you get bored with reading the Word, you know, you, get, you just get bored with the calling God has placed in your life. You get atrophied. That's what sin does. 
which means we have to be in the practice of regular confession in order to see sin clearly. Faith-filled repentance sees sin clearly. So familiarize yourself with God's holy word and you will become altogether unfamiliar with transgression. Three, repentance, when coupled with faith, seeks absolution in Christ. Repentance, when coupled with faith, seeks absolution in Christ. Having admitted God's covenant faithfulness to be the only ground of hope and having seen his sin clearly, David runs to the Lord for forgiveness. When we see our sin clearly, which can only be done in light of God's word, the path to forgiveness widens for us. We have clarity on what that sin truly is and we can run to Christ for forgiveness. So the aim of holiness is a heart that is unreservedly given over to the pure and unadulterated obedience that God requires. To ask God to renew you is to ask God to turn you inside out, upside down, so that your new self can live righteously before the face of God. To ask the Holy Spirit to to get His hands dirty when the stain of sin blemishes our hearts. True repentance coupled with faith thrusts itself on the promises of the gospel. And we need the cross in order to have sin abolished. We need the cross daily. And our covenantal standing before God is then set right. But we also need the resurrection to have those benefits applied to us as the Spirit seals us unto Christ our King. So friends, familiarize yourself with the gospel and you will become altogether unfamiliar with iniquity. Number four, repentance united to faith brings joy. Repentance united to faith brings joy. Once absolved of guilt because of the active and passive obedience of Christ, which is credited to you, why wouldn't we lift up a song of praise to the Lord? Why wouldn't we? We want repentance, but we also want total renewal. Total renewal means that our lips and our hands are just as pure as our hearts. We don't want just pure hearts. We want pure hands, clean hands, clean lips. Right worship is not possible with our hearts defiled by sin, and so repentance deals with even our songs. Look at verse 15. So familiarize yourself with worship, and you will become altogether unfamiliar with all vileness. And finally, number five, faith-saturated repentance enlivens our communities. Faith-saturated repentance enlivens our communities. The burden of sin in the heart will be a burden of sin in the church. A sin-burdened church will be impotent to disciple the nations. Have you sinned against somebody in this church? I don't care if it was years ago. Then repentance is the next step. A sin-burdened church is an impotent church to disciple the nations. The individual and the community, the community dynamic is highlighted here in the text. The, the, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And then you see this language of build the walls of Jerusalem. What's the connection? Well, humbled people constitute humbled nations. And as, I'm, and as I said earlier, renewed people renew cultures. So re- repentance detoxes the soul so that you can serve God and neighbor. If sin is left to fester, it will grow increasingly rancid in your heart, which will cause both physical and spiritual problems. And our culture is desperately sick right now. (laughs) Anybody been so bitter it's just really hurt you? Somebody said, 
Bitterness is, is you swallowing the poison and hoping the other person dies. See, infectious Christianity runs both ways, either, either in winning souls to the gospel of the kingdom or deterring them because of our own spiritual entanglements. And friends, I want to close with this reminder from Joel 2. It's in the front of your bullets in there. Verse 13. And tear your heart and not your garments. Now return to Yahweh your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting concerning evil. Listen, a broken heart, unlike a vase, is a healed heart. Every other thing that's broken serves no purpose. But a broken heart actually does. And repentance is never too late, and it's never too soon. Repentance is never too late, and it's never too soon. When sin dwindles in your heart, the joy of the Lord increases in your heart. We must be quicker to run to Christ and His provisions in the gospel than we were running to the sin. And remember, beloved, you have been made holy in Christ, so become what you have already been made to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess along with David here that we probably have way more sin to confess than what we might let off. I pray that you would challenge us with your Holy Spirit to think deeply about our day-to-day -day and moment-by-moment. -moment. Help us to be quick to repentance, quick to faith, utilizing those things you have given us as a blessing so that we can live in peace with one another, Lord, and ultimately with you. And I pray for anyone here, Father, that's beleaguered by sin, that has not yet quite gotten to that place of full, deep repentance. I pray that your Spirit would bring him or her to you. Help our children to learn the path of repentance and faith. Help them to grow to love the things of God, to, to worship and praise you because of your grace and your mercy. So be gracious to us, O God, according to your loving kindness according to the abundance of your compassion. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.